what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast, episode number 20. Nine. I've got a fantastic show to share with you today. I'm speaking to my good friend, Mr. Johnny Hoddle from the Staying Free podcast. Now, Johnny has a special place in my heart. He was the very first person to invite me for an interview when I started my YouTube channel, The Parallel Systems Broadcast. He saw one of my videos on the housing market and he reached out. And since that time, we've become good friends. And in tonight's conversation, we talk about that journey that we've both been on from the very start of our channels and podcasts, discussing what's happening in the freedom community in general, which is a term I don't really resonate with, but a lot of people understand that term, the freedom community. So we talk about that. We talk about where we're heading, what obstacles lie before us, and what the next steps are. And as Johnny is somebody that's been very influential in that community, he has elevated the voices of many people who were speaking out against all of the tyranny of the past two years. I really want to get Johnny's take on that. Where are we? Where are we heading? I also asked Johnny about his life in Mexico, what's it like over there in terms of freedom and what does he think the trajectory is for the Latin American countries. But then in part two, the conversation really picks up a gear and we start to talk about things like honesty, principles, integrity. We talk about struggles with depression, finding God, finding spirituality and we actually have quite an in-depth discussion around that about what God is to Johnny, what God is to me and some of the theological questions that have been presented because of all this tyranny over the past few years. Johnny tells us about his experience, for example, with psychedelics and ayahuasca and how this helped open his mind to the potential that there is more going on here than just dead materialism. So this one is a long podcast. It warms up in part one. We get into a lot of the more general topics. Then in part two, a lot more of the personal topics. I think members are going to find a lot of value in that, particularly if you're on your own journey. So members, please remember to sign in for part two over at parallelmite.com. If you are not a member but would like to join us, please do come along. The website is constantly evolving and there's a lot of censorship going on right now particularly around the topic of the great taking, which if you don't know about, please go to my YouTube channel and check out my videos on it if they are still there. But in next week's episode, I am going to be doing a very deep dive on the great taking and specifically the DTCC, which you'll find out all about next week. So I'm going to be putting that out as a podcast rather than on my free channel, purely because the censorship is so high right now. We have had interviews on this subject taken down, but I've got so much information to share with you all on that one. And members, you're in for a treat. So look out for that one next week. But before we get to that one, we've got this fantastic show tonight to share with you. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And of course, like always, I will see you all in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. I'm here with good friend of the show, Johnny Hoddle, who hosts the Staying Free podcast. 
Johnny, we've become friends over the past, I would say, 16 months. You actually was the very first person to interview me. So <laughs> you was actually the first person to interview me when I just started my YouTube channel. So you have a special place in my heart for that reason alone. But we actually became good friends after that. We actually found out we had a family connection too. We actually had a mutual friend. Uh, so yeah, I won't get into it, but yeah, we, we it was very weird synchronicity. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Johnny. Uh, for people that are not aware of your work, maybe we could just begin by finding out a little bit more about what you do, where people can find you, and then we'll get into this uh, discussion. Yeah, well, thanks for the uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. It's always always good to speak to you. And um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's really great that we've developed this this friendship um, over time. Um, and that was a very very weird synchronicity that you mentioned there. Um, actually, just to, just I won't kind of go too much into it, but like just for so the audience has a little bit more info about that. I was with a friend talking about the podcast episode that I'd done with you. So that, you know, this was um, a very very strange experience talking about that podcast and just kind of describing it and saying, oh, you know, like uh, I spoke to this this guy is really really interesting. He lived on a boat, this that and the other, and uh, it's a very very close friend of mine. And he immediately uh, said, oh, is his name Mike? And it turns out that you are kind of family, you know, there's a family connection there, which is just super, super strange. But I think as we've said before, Mike, when you're, when you're doing the kind of stuff that we're doing and when you really um, start aligning with your, I guess like you start aligning with your, your purpose a bit more, weird synchronicities seem to kind of come into your life. And uh, this was one of kind of several I've had. So yeah, that was super interesting and a strange experience, but um, you know, like uh it's, it's, it's been great and it's been great <clears throat> getting to know you more. And I'm glad that I was, uh, you know, the first to kind of get you on, on my podcast. Cause I knew as soon as I saw your, your content there, I knew that you were going to do big things. Like I, I knew that, that the kind of stuff that you were doing, I was very surprised at that point. I don't think you had too many people watching, but I thought there's huge, huge amount of signal here. So, you know, I'm sure that your listeners uh, for this podcast are going to know that already. And, um, so, you know, it's, it's great to, to see that the kind of progress, uh, that you've made and I'm, I'm always rooting for you. So yeah, in terms of just an intro for myself, um, I grew up in England like yourself and um, kind of lived a, you know, a relatively normal uh, life until I found Bitcoin in 2000, 2000 uh, I think it was 16, and became kind of much more libertarian minded, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, started uh, kind of getting more into libertarian philosophy, um, you know, kind of through Bitcoin and understanding hard money and Austrian economics. And then when it got to uh, 2020, which I think was a lot of people's kind of big wake up moment, I uh, at that point was um, kind of doing some traveling in Asia and Australia. And I came back to the UK and just had a little bit of time when all that was kicking off. It, you know, I, I came back and just had some time to, to really think and kind of reassess what was going on in the world and kind of quickly came to the conclusion that we were being lied to about everything that was going on there, uh, which again, I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners will kind of uh, understand that. And um as I went deeper into that, eventually I kind of thought, okay, what's my kind of contribution going to be to this? Because just sitting and being frustrated is, you know, not particularly helpful. And at that point I was talking to a lot of people, you know, on the internet really about um, what was going on in the world. And I didn't really have anyone in my personal life that I felt like I could really speak about these issues to. I needed to kind of like find people who understood and could see what I could see, because to me it was very, very obvious. And it was like, I couldn't understand how other people couldn't see it. Um, so in, 2000 I don't know if it was 2021 I think it might have been I'm not sure exactly when I decided to start a podcast which was really just to talk to people in the freedom community and just talk about their you know their experiences and talk about their views and um, their perspectives and then I've kind of you know just kept going with that and put out regular episodes just talking to 
various people. We talk about all kinds of stuff. It's mainly themed around the ideas of freedom, ideas of kind of self-sovereignty and kind of taking control of, of your own life, uh, hard money, Austrian economics, um, libertarian philosophy. So we talk about just a whole um, bunch of different stuff. I just try to get a mix of interesting guests on. And um, yeah, now I live in Mexico. <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning. I, I moved to Mexico during uh, the kind of ho whole COVID debacle. I basically just, you know, I'd, I'd already done a lot of uh, traveling in the past anyway, but I just couldn't stay somewhere where I felt like my freedom was being just perpetually infringed on. Um, so I decided to come to Mexico, which at that point, um, 2021, it was the most free country in the world and haven't really looked back since. Now I, now I live here permanently and uh, yeah, really enjoy my, enjoy my life out in Mexico. So, yeah, that's a, a primer on me. Well, there's a lot I could kind of move on, Johnny, in terms of what you said. But first, I just want to say thank you for your kind words. It's very nice to to hear that back. But I honestly feel like I owe a debt to you because, like I said, you was the first interview that I ever did. And not many listeners will know this, but the, the name Parallel Mike comes from you. You actually, <laughs> you actually called me Parallel Mike. I was never called Parallel Mike. That was my Twitter handle, Parallel underscore Mike. And I didn't title it as that, as though this is my name. It was just, oh, Parallel Systems is taken. My name's Mike. So I was like, oh, I'll just call it Parallel underscore Mike. But when you released that interview, you called me Parallel Mike as actually that's my name. And it stuck. So, so that's why I'm called Parallel Mike now. Before that, it was just Mike. So again, uh, I owe you that one. But I also owe you a debt, Johnny, in terms of up until that point, I'd never been interviewed. Like literally, I'd never been interviewed. Nobody knew me in finance. Nobody knew me anywhere. Like you, I just had that desire to throw my hat into the ring. I thought I know enough to give people some advice, some support. And of course, as you know, my entire career was working with people in terms of their psychology. So I thought I do have something to add and I could support people through this. I do have quite a bit of knowledge when it comes to wealth preservation. But, you know, it doesn't matter. There's so many channels that are fantastic out there that never go anywhere. But I must say that when you asked me to be on your show, it really was a confidence boost. Uh, we all need that. And I need it, too. So I really appreciate that, Johnny. So I just want to hand it back to you and say uh, thank you for your support of my channel and for giving me that kind of first leg up because you'd already established yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I mean... I appreciate that you appreciate that, but, uh, you know, for me, I, I definitely, you know, especially in those early days, I was just looking for people who kind of really seemed to get it. And I think the, the tweet that I saw was you'd replied, it was actually, a, you'd made a video about the, how the, the housing market and, and stuff like that. And I was just like, wow, this just absolutely encapsulated. And, and I think I said to you in that first episode, I thought that you might've been a teacher or something previously because it's just your way of articulating information was really good. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I wanted to, to bring you on the show. So I'm really glad to have been that been that first person and i didn't know until recently that i was the one who who uh <laughs> who had you named as, as parallel mike i thought you were already parallel mike so it wasn't until you told me about a week or two ago and i when you said oh you know i wasn't parallel mike um until i came in your show and i thought oh that's interesting um but you know now you're parallel mike and that's awesome so i'm glad to have kind of uh, played a part in that but but also you know like i said you've 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 done great and your work speaks for itself so i think that as much as i you know appreciate your your um the kind words about me having you on, on my my podcast and stuff like that, I'm sure that you would have kind of achieved a lot of success regardless because, you know, the content you put out is great. And I, I think people people can see it and people can see the authenticity there. And I think that's, that's what this time is about. It's about authentic people. You know, like all the people I follow now, all the people I'm watching, they're generally people that I either know personally or certainly people I just see and sense that inherent authenticity there. Like, I, I just think that that that's what this time is about. You know, the, the kind of fakers 
have been pushed aside somewhat. I think people are really like um, striving for realness in the world. They don't want any of this fake nonsense. They don't just want some influencer who just wants to, you know, get the likes or get the, get the engagement or whatever. People want real authentic people and people who actually have had experience in the world and, and kind of know what they're talking about. So um, I think that the time is now for, you know, people making the kind of content that you're doing, Mike. So, you know, it's, um, it's all on you. You've done, you've done a great job. So uh, I appreciate it. And obviously it's, it's great to be, be friends as well and, uh, and get to have conversations like this. Yeah, well, that's actually a topic that I really want to come back to and probably in part two, because I think as we go through tonight's episode, it would be great to kind of get into those topics about morality, principles, truth. So I'd really like us to go there. But I think before we do that, let's just talk a little bit about your show, because for me, Johnny, you really became the centerpiece of the UK freedom movement when it comes to podcasts. Now, I know there's some other big podcasts out there. But I think yours is the grassroots one. Yours is the one that gets the people who were really putting themselves out there during the darkest time. So Yuri Bezmanov. Oh, there's so many that you've had on your show. Uh, who's the other guy that I'm thinking of? He's always posting. Dan no, you had Dan on, but there's a guy who always posts motivational messages on Twitter. Ryan Riley. Ryan, yeah. Ryan's an awesome Ryan, guy. Yeah. And, and yeah, it seemed great. to me like he went through... You, you didn't really have a criteria. It was like anybody who's being courageous and speaking truth and willing to speak to them. And I really loved that because that was quite punk to me. It was like, no, we don't, we're not going for big names. We're not going for the who's who. We're going for anyone and everyone who is standing up. And I think you became kind of the podcast for that. And that's what I really found value in when I heard your podcast. And as you know, I think you're a fantastic podcaster, probably more so than you do yourself. But I, I really do think that you are a natural uh, and I'm not a natural. But beyond that, Johnny, I just wanted to say, how do you feel from when you started your podcast, which was when? What was the month or year? I think I think it was maybe November 2021, I, I, I want to say, yeah. November 2021. So how do you feel like the, I mean, we loosely call it the freedom community. I personally don't resonate with that, but I know a lot of people do. So I'm happy to just use it. I think people understand what that means. How do you feel the freedom community evolved from that time when you first started your podcast to where we are today? Because it's only, let's say a year and a half, two years max, but it feels to me like a lot's changed. So I just wanted to get your take on it as somebody who's been front and center, particularly in the British movement. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it has changed a lot. It's, to be honest, it's kind of hard to tell because I think that the freedom movement previously was, and I guess even now to some degree, was very, very centered on Twitter. Twitter was, you know, the the town square for all this conversation. And I feel like over time, Twitter has been continuously changing its algorithms. And, you know, initially I felt like it, it was actually reflective of what was happening on the ground. Like individuals could have big accounts, could have a big voice. And now I kind of feel like that's changed, but I don't think that it's it's actually changed in reality. I just think the Twitter algorithms have changed. Twitter now is pushing all of the kind of big influencers who are you know sharing the exact same content. They just basically screenshot each other's you know posts that they're putting out and then do the same thing. And then oh look, like another tweet's gone viral with the basically the exact same messaging as yesterday. And it's it's very I, I find that kind of just a bit lame really. But I don't think that that's reflective of the actual movement. I think that the movement itself is still is still strong. I mean. I don't know whether you feel this as well, Mike, being in Poland, but I, I certainly feel like despite having a podcast that was initially founded on kind of the UK freedom movement, not being in the UK has definitely made me feel that I'm a little distance, that I'm a little kind of out of the loop with exactly what's going on on the ground over there. So I still have to kind of rely on things like Twitter to actually kind of 
get an idea for you know what's what's the conversation that's happening what are the things that are being shared etc whereas maybe if i was in the uk and i was going to i think they call it third wednesdays and stuff like that that you know they've got these kind of freedom meetups maybe i would have a different kind of idea of it but certainly in terms of how the the online freedom movement is going i still think it's incredibly strong honestly i i really think that um covid 19 was the straw that broke the camel's back and a lot of people they woke up and are not going back to sleep so i think you know it's become less now about the uk and it's become more of a worldwide thing i think that's one of the one of the key things that's happened before it was like hey i'm gonna go out and protest and we need to talk about what's happening with the the, the lockdowns or this that and the other whereas now you haven't got those kind of i guess like hair on fire problems which are more local you've got these big issues that are more global you know like the global debt issues and you've got things like the social credit systems and cbdc's and all this kind of stuff now that that is the main topic of conversation i think it's become a global movement but i think that's fine i think it it can and should and naturally will trend towards being a global movement because these are global issues that we're facing so yeah i would say that um to kind of summarize the uk movement still exists still is strong but i think that it's moved more global and um i think that ultimately the issues that we're facing are more global anyway so i think that's that's probably a good thing but what i do like is that it still hasn't kind of lost its grassroots feel. There's still a lot, a lot of people who have kind of been forged in that time who were kind of like nobody's before who have now got bigger voices. And I think that's awesome. You know, and I would put probably both of us in that category. You know, n- nobody, nobody knew who we were before we started being content creators, but we felt kind of compelled to start doing it on the, on the basis of what was happening in the world. We felt a calling to do it. And we've kind of, you know, we're not big famous people, but, you know, we've kind of at least have somewhat of a, of a standing and other people do as well. You know, Ryan Riley is a good example. Like, you know, he's someone who he just did a lot of talking about important issues during that time, gained a big, fo- a big following justifiably and still, still has somewhat a big, a big following. You know, I think that conversation probably has moved, moved on a little bit. And I do feel like some of these big accounts, I mean, I remember when Ryan Riley's tweets, they were going huge, you know, like every single thing that he put out was getting tons of retweets. And now it's not so much, which I think is more about the Twitter, Twitter algorithms than anything else. But um, yeah, just a roundabout way of saying, like, I think that um, a lot of people kind of, they found their, their calling somewhat during that time. And I don't think that they've lost it. I think a lot of people have come together. They found a tribe, you know, in, in my case, and I think with a lot of other people's situations, they needed to find other people because th- those in their own family or their own friendship group might just not have seen it the way they did. And they found this kind of online community. And now that's turned into a global community. And, I, and I, so, yeah, I still think it's strong. And I think that we're, we're as hyper aware as ever as what's go, of what's going on in the world, which is exactly what we need to be at this point. Yeah, I've seen a similar thing myself. And I think what happened was the pressure was so high at the beginning for people like you and I. And we've spoken about it off camera, but I'd love for you to just kind of give me a bit of insight, if you don't mind, into how things were before you started the podcast. What was it like with your family? What did you try I mean, I can tell you from my experience, I spent probably, I say spent, I should say wasted a year of my life trying to get through to my family. Although although I was in Poland, they was in the UK, but I was really working overtime to send them every possible type of source or resource. So, you know, from scientific uh, papers, journals, to podcasts, to the wildest conspiracy podcast, to JFK, RFK Jr., like everything that I could, like to try and try and get something i was like one of these things might just resonate one video or one tweet uh, and i really exhausted myself and at the end of it i came to the conclusion that i need to find my audience i need to find i need to help people who want to be helped 
And I know I've got things that I can share that will help. So I'm just going to go all in on that route. And that is where the, um, the, the episodes came from. That's where my very first YouTube videos. And I'm not fully sure how you got started, Johnny. So I'm going to ask you about that. But I'm guessing it was probably a similar frustration and just realizing how big this was and that this was really a fork in the road for humanity. And you had to make that decision. Do I, do I go down with the ship? Or do I fight this and maybe go down fighting, but at least I'll have that integrity and honesty about it. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, I think when I, when I saw everything going on, I would say that for the first kind of, I was actually a little later than a lot of people, I think to actually realize that everything that was going on was just a scam. Like it took me a little bit of time. I, I, um, I would say that for those, like during that actual lock, that first kind of I guess it was supposed to be a two week lockdown. I can't remember what it turned into, but certainly for the first two to three weeks of it, I thought, okay, maybe this is kind of legit. Maybe this is, you know, the right thing to do. I just didn't really know too much about it. And then as time was going on, I just kind of, I just kind of thought there's something, there's something not quite right here. There's something, there's something strange about this. And I did try to, once I kind of really looked into it, actually, one of the things that really um, kind of turned me on to some of these ideas, do, do you know Brian Rose from London Real? Yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember so, his interview with Ike. Is that what you're going to mention? There you go. Yeah. So yeah. he did this interview with David Ike, and normally I would, I wouldn't listen to to David Ike. You know, I'm not, I'm not hating on the guy or anything, but I just his ideas are just a bit out there for me. But I went, you know, I watched this this interview, and he was talking about, he was saying this whole thing is about the vaccine. They are going to try and make everyone take a vaccine. And I remember watching that thing, and I was like, I still kind of think he's crazy. But I remember saying to myself, kind of, you know, making a promise to myself, I was like, if I'm wrong, if, I, if I'm wrong and he's right and they do try and force a vaccine on everyone and they start taking away rights if you haven't been vaccinated, I will, I, like, I will never submit to it. I will never submit to it and I will do everything I can to try and inform people around me that this is the wrong thing. And uh, as time was, you know, going on, I remember it was kind of getting into the winter and then it was kind of coming into January and they started talking about these vaccines. And my first thing was, it's probably unlike, you know, at that point, I still, at least, I think my my views have basically changed a lot on the nature of illness and virology and stuff anyway. But at that point, I still believed, okay, well, at least there's a novel virus. But I thought, well, it normally takes, you know, eight to 12 years to, to come up with a vaccine. So my first clue was if they come up with a vaccine in some record time, some ridiculous amount of time that's just, you know, incomprehensible, I was like, that's going to be red flag number one. And then they started talking, it got into winter and I was like, okay, it's been it's been, you know, a year since COVID was discovered and they've already got a vaccine. Okay. So they've, they've already, they've already done about, you know, a thousand percent increase on the number, the amount of time it would normally take. So that was red flag number one. And I thought, and at that point I really started talking to my, to my family and to my friends. And I was saying, you need to be incredibly cautious of this thing. I was like, I was like, I know that everyone's celebrating and the news is celebrating and they're saying, oh, you know, what a marvel of science that this vaccine has been found. But I started saying to my friends and family, like, watch out. But if you remember at that time, Mike, I know these, these things have become a bit more palatable now, but at that time it was incredibly controversial to, to say anything like, like that. I mean, questioning COVID and the vaccine stuff, everyone will be like, Oh, you know, you don't care about people who've died. You're a granny killer. Like there was a huge, huge amount of social pressure to basically just not say anything bad. So, and I even got caught up on this. I, I still feel to this day, I wasn't, um, I wasn't forceful enough. Now it's a difficult thing to say because sometimes if you're too forceful, you end up pushing people away from you and they don't, they don't listen. So I tried to strike that balance correctly. And I'm not sure whether I, whether I did in retrospect, but certainly at the time I made my best attempt to speak to the people around me and to just say, look, I understand that you believe everything is being told, but I was just saying, look, 
when this vaccine comes out, when it gets rolled out to the public, be extremely cautious to take it. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, don't take it. I'm not telling you don't take it, but I'm saying be extremely cautious. Like really think about this, really think about whether you're at risk and really think about your own personal experience as well versus what you're being told in the media. You know, a lot of people were just ignoring what was in front of their own eyes. You know, you would go and ask people, you'd say, do you know anyone who's died of COVID? And they'd be like, oh no, but you know, it's the biggest pandemic of all time. And I'm like, okay, well, doesn't that, don't those two things, don't those two things, like, aren't they in contradiction to each other? Is your own personal experience of the world not completely in contradiction to what you're seeing in the real world? And, you know, some people kind of did ask a few questions and, um, but I didn't, I don't think that I I managed to reach through anyone who was, you know, to the point of saying, I'm not going to do it, you know, and I, and my, my family, like all of my family, you know, took it and things like that. And I, you know, I, I wish the, the best for them. You know, I, I really hoped that I would be proven wrong, but I remember when the boosters came out, um, you know, when the boosters came out, a very close, close member of my family imme- immediately saw it then, you know, it was like some people, it was, it was just the one strike. It was vaccine in record time. Some people, it was forcing the vaccine, taking rights away. For a lot of people, I think it was the booster. It was that third strike that they suddenly were like, I've taken the first one. I, I was doing what was right for society or whatever. Now I'm being told I've got to take one every however long it is. And that's when my family really started to wake up. And that's when my friends started to wake up. And I and I feel like there has been this kind of silent vindication that's taken place. Now, I haven't really Has had anyone come anyone to you, Johnny, and said, oh, like you was right. I, I wish I'd have listened to you. Have, you. have you heard that from anyone? Or has it just been like you said, a silent vindication? Yeah, it, I, there's a couple of people who have said it, not necessarily said I should have listened to you, but certainly have said I made the wrong decision and I regret it, you know, and, and, and for me, that's because I know how much I spoke to them about it. For me, I'm I'm, I'm kind of thinking I'm not going to stand there and say I told you so, because, you know, I'm not going to gloat. Like my the most important thing is that they, they, they start making independent, you know, conscious decisions on their own volition. But um, yeah, like I, I took that near enough as, as vindication, you know, um, yeah, I think that um, I'm not. I'm not sitting here saying, you know, I want people to 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 come and and to and to thank me for for what I was saying, or to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't listen. That's just it's just not important at all to me. The most important thing is that people do eventually start critically thinking. But most importantly, not just for this issue, but for the next thing that comes along. Because when the next tie-up comes along, are those same people gonna? Is it gonna take them three, four, five strikes until they? finally realize they're being lied to or are they going to be skeptical from day one because i know from where i'm at now i'm going to be skeptical from for, i'm skeptical of, every, of everything at this point you know like um so yeah are they going to be there i don't know but I, I hope that they will and i also hope you know that the people who have taken the vaccine we're seeing more and more concerning stuff come out about it you know i mean first of all it was the the, the kind of myocarditis and pericarditis stuff and then it was uh, you know, more recently, we're, we're talking about kind of rare cancers and stuff. I saw something the other day talking about uh, turbo, turbo cancer, I think it was in the past couple of days. I really, really hope that this stuff is um, is in, is incorrect and that people have, have had a lifeline here. But um, I guess time will time will tell, you know. Yeah, for all we know that maybe in 10 years, the death rate is 50%. Maybe it's 80%. Maybe it's 90 Like we we actually don't know. Uh, all I can say is what you've seen too. Yeah, you know, turbo cancer is a thing. I know numerous people who got diagnosed with aggressive cancer over the past uh, year. Uh, I had a family member who was vaccine injured. Uh, she passed out, cracked her skull, got a driver's license taken off her because she had a huge seizure. I had an uncle who got Parkinson's within three months. He got a year to live. I had my mum's friend and work colleague who she's worked with for like 10 years. 
he was an athlete. He was a cyclist, so he used to compete amateur, but, you know, very, very fit. He got diagnosed within a few months of the vaccine. He, yeah, it was a muscle wasting disease. So they gave him a year to live and a very terrible year, you know, where you're going to lose function. So all of these yeah. things, nobody can point to it and say, oh, it was definitely that. But I think that's the point too. I think this was made to play on probably genetic vulnerabilities to make us, if we, if we was susceptible to something, it probably would leverage that somehow. I'm not sure how maybe just weaken our immune system. The other thing that I would say is the people who have heart issues, I, I mean, that's just guaranteed to be a side effect at this point. There's no disputing that one. You know, we can definitely say that. But I think all the other stuff, I think it's a very clever way to harm people if it is difficult to trace it back. You know, if someone gets a, a really aggressive cancer and you you went to them and said, oh, maybe it's the vaccine, they'd probably look at you horrified and be like, why the hell would you say that to me when I've just been diagnosed? So you can't actually do it either. You know, it's a very mm. clever kind of an evil and demonic uh, way to harm people. But but like you, Johnny, um, at some point, I think you have to accept, like it's Buddhism, you have to accept, as terrible as it is to accept, it, accept that, you have to accept that other people have chosen to do that and they've got their own destiny yeah. and now you've got your own destiny but one thing that i thought would be interesting to ask as well is how did your family respond to the podcast and has that changed as well because you were speaking out very publicly i mean speaking on a podcast my family have not actually engaged with my work at all i don't think they've ever listened yeah. to an episode over the past year and a year and a half and They've mentioned it a couple of times, but no one's ever, even when I was getting put on a really big show like Palisades Gold Radio, and I was like, you know, this is my favorite show. It was a big thing for me. I never had anyone reach out and say, well done, congratulations. And like you, I'm not actually, that's, that, that doesn't motivate me anyways. I'm not an ego-driven person. But I wonder if it's some kind of, maybe a guilt mechanism or maybe an embarrassment or shame because we all do have an ego to some degree. So I'm just going to throw it back to you, Johnny. Have you had any family member discuss your work? And if so, what kind of context was it in? Yeah, not, not so much. I mean, it's similar to be honest, Mike, I think that like most, like my family, it's just not there. It's not an interest that they have. And I always just think that with my own podcast, I don't try to, even though initially when I made it, I did think, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to try to reach people closer to me rather than having a heated argument with them at the dinner table. Maybe it's a, a way to kind of reach them is to say, Hey, look, I made a podcast about this. Do you want to, do you want to have a listen and, you know, and maybe share your thoughts about what we discussed in the episode. It's kind of an opportunity to kind of maybe drip a little bit of information in there, but without being so, you know, having a, a kind of heated argument or something about it. But yeah, my family has not really engaged with it as well, to be honest. Um, I mean, my, you know, my family has always been supportive of everything that I do. Um, so, you know, it's not that they're, they're kind of like generally unsupportive, but I think that I, I perhaps think that there is still an element of them despite everything that's happened. And despite, in my view, maybe kind of being proven correct on a lot of stuff, there's still this hesitancy of like, have I lost my mind? Have I lost my mind? And that's the reason I'm doing this content. Am <laughs> I, am I, you know, I don't know whether you get the same thing, Mike, but it's almost just like when you're, when you're out there making videos and talking about, you know, the new world order and stuff there's just some people that are just not ready for that. And you, you have to be, you have to accept it and you have to still kind of say, you know, like I can still have like loving relationships with my family, but you know, they're just not ready for that kind of information. And I think that what my family has generally done is that 
they've taken the kind of the media's kind of blue pill reasons for this whole thing. You know, like the media kind of came out with this whole thing of, oh, you know, it turns out COVID, like it wasn't as fierce as we initially thought. Oh, oh look at that. And oh, look, we've, you know, the, the virus has now migrated into kind of less severe forms. And that's why people, you know, aren't dying so, so much. And oh, yeah, I know we've got loads of excess deaths after the vaccine has come out, but actually it's because a lot of people got obese during the lockdown. So they got really fat and that's why they're having heart attacks. You know, whatever the blue pill reason is that the media is giving them rather than saying, Oh, you know, like my friend or my family member or whatever was telling me that all this was going to happen. They were saying that, you know, this vaccine wasn't safe and that we're going to see huge amounts of excess deaths. And now we're seeing them, but then they go to the media for the response. They go to the media for the answer rather than going to the person who predicted it. Right. And, and I think this is, you know, th this is almost like an archetype, Mike, like the, the prophet does the work of profit, right? And I'm not saying, okay, well, we're profits, you know, but what I'm saying is like, we prophesize what would happen. And we suggested, hey, look, might be happening this way. I know I sound like a crazy person screaming from the hills, but I can kind of see things going in this way. But what ends up happening is that even if you kind of say, this is how things are going to go down, you still kind of get ignored even when you're proven right. So I, I think our job is not to kind of really expect that we're going to, that someone's going to come back to us and say, Hey man, you, you know, you were, you were right about all that stuff. That's amazing. Like, you know, tell, tell me more. What ultimately I think ends up happening is, Oh, you're right about all this stuff, but not because of anything you said, not because you said that, you know, the new old order was going to do this and Bill Gates is evil and they're all whatever, but actually, uh, you know, you were right, but it just so happened that, you know, we misjudged the amount of severity of the virus. And, you know, we didn't realize everyone was going to get fat from lockdown and die of heart attacks. So that's the reason we're seeing excess death. So it's like, they will take the blue. The, this is the part of the problem is that, is that even when you're proven right, there's always a blue pilled answer there for the masses. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we have to combat is we have to say, and next time it happens, right? We, you know, we've got to be prepared for it. So for instance, when we're talking about whatever the next tie up is going to be, when we see it coming, we can't just say to the people around us, hey, all of this stuff's going to happen. Be prepared, beware. We've got to say, hey, all of this is going to happen. And they're probably going to blame it on this thing when it does happen. But you need to be aware that that's not actually the thing. It's all of these reasons. So you need to kind of onboard them onto the reasoning that you're talking about and say, look, they're going to have a story for it. When I'm proven right about these things, there is going to be a story that the media feeds you to, to say what's happened. You know, for instance, let's say with these cyber cyber pandemic or whatever, they'll be like, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like, uh, you're, don't worry, your money's safe in the bank. And then suddenly everyone's money's gone. And rather than just saying, hey, they're going to steal all your money. We need to say, they're going to steal all your money and they're probably going to try and blame Russia. They're going to steal all your money and they're probably going to blame X, Y, Z. So we almost have to be kind of prepared for the blue-pilled reasoning that's going to be delivered to them by the media after the fact. So it's it's a really it's a really tough thing because ultimately, Mike, we are severely red pill people, and sometimes we don't realize how separate we are from the majority of people. And that can be your your. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is within our um, disposition that makes us that way. But for some reason, we have a very different disposition to most of our friends and most of our family, even people that we're very very close with and we're great friends with or, or very very close within our family. Somehow we're able to just kind of like have a sense for this stuff. We're, we're much more sensitive to this stuff in the world. And I think that it's very difficult to communicate with people who don't have that sense, you know, and I'm not saying that they won't have it forever. Maybe, maybe there will be some trigger point that has it. And I don't know exactly how you do trigger that. It's, that's, um, you know, a big topic of discussion is like, how do you really kind of like red pill someone who, who just isn't, isn't ready for it. But I think that that's part of the problem is that even when you're proven right, there's still this tendency to just go back into the gravitational pull of the blue, of the blue pill, which is very, very strong for some people. Yeah. You know, when I was working with people who had things like addictions, whether that was drugs, uh, alcohol, sex addiction, whatever it was, or people that had 
let's say, a tendency to always find themselves in the same dire situation. You know, some people, unfortunately, they grow up with such trauma around them or they are abused or whatever it is that they then recreate it again and again and again through their life. And no matter what, no matter how much insight they get into themselves, they always seem to just gravitate to the same terrible dynamics in a relationship or they just seem yeah. to self-sabotage. You know, when things get better for themselves and you're like, oh my God, they're going to make it, they're going to make it. And then boom, they they absolutely sabotage themselves. Like just to give you one example, there was a family I was working with. It was a mother who was a heroin addict and the son was really sweet. And she managed to keep him her entire life, which was very surprising because usually he would have been, normally they get taken off the mother, but every time they tried to take him away, he ran back to her. And in the end, the social workers just gave up. They just said, we can't, well, this this kid is so attached to his mother, no matter how much danger she puts him in, he goes yeah. back, that they kind of just gave up. And I, I kind of supported the family as she got clean over a year and everything was going great for them. You know, I was watching it go from strength to strength. And historically, they'd lived in some su such terrible circumstances, like they nearly died in a house fire. She used to disappear for months on end, leaving at home with no food. It was an awful situation. But to see them kind of grow into this strong, stable family unit, we helped them get a house. Uh, I helped him get into college. Like everything was going great. And it was a year into it. And then all of a sudden, contact just ended. And I was like, well, something's gone wrong. And I was trying my best to contact him. I went around to the house. No answer. And for a month, I just couldn't get in touch with them. Then all of a sudden, I got this phone call one evening. I was just leaving work. I'd been working late. It was about 8 p.m. And it was just like, Mike. And I was like, I was like, yeah. I was like, and I knew who it was. I was like, you okay? He said, I've got no food left. I've been here a month. It's like I've run out and the dog's starving. So I was like, shit. So I was like, wait there. I'm coming around. And I went to the shop, uh, bought a big food shop, went to the house. And I found out that the mum just relapsed and just disappeared. And I was, you know, that's so frustrating, but I got used to that as as in my career that that stuff happened. Uh, and I, I really see the same mechanism happening right now with everything that's going on, because I really think all these people that are now supposedly questioning COVID and saying, oh, well, OK, yeah, I know now it's just, it was it was a lie and they tricked us until you actually unpick the mechanism that is behind that. You're going to fall for the next one. You know what I mean, Johnny? Like, it's easy to say after the fact, oh, I see I see why I got tricked X, Y, and Z. But I think this is history. And we used to call it the cycle of change. And the person has to go around that cycle of change once, sometimes twice, sometimes forever. And they never get out of it. But sometimes they do. But it might take seven or eight attempts. Now, the problem we've got now is we don't have seven or eight attempts. I, you know what I mean? I think you only get a few shots at this before it's too late. And if you took a, a like an injection, for example... That could be it. One failure could be what ends ends your life or gets you really ill. Uh, so I do see the same dynamics happening that I've seen in the past. I also know that it's very, very difficult to get through to those people because ultimately, you know, you're the captain of your ship, Johnny. I'm the captain of my ship. We all have a destiny that we we can interplay with. Like, it's up to you to decide. So, so yeah, I don't want to be blackpilled on that specific thing because I have seen people turn it around. But I also do know that the longer you're kind of stuck in that, situation the more the less likely it is you're gonna get out of it so um but 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 trust me i have had a lot of people come across to my channel and reach out to me privately who did figure it out as well so i'm not saying like it's impossible but i just think where we apply our energy as uh, individuals or you as a prophet and me you know that's what pj called us both actually pj buys uh, but where you apply your energy has to be with the people who want to listen and if those other people 
uh, do figure out something's wrong, they'll probably come to you because they'll remember, oh, Johnny was saying this two years ago, three years ago. And maybe it's a pain point as well, Johnny. At some point, the pain might get so much for them. And if they do lose it all, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it takes. And all of a sudden they say, I'm ready, Johnny. Tell, Fill me in, man. Tell me everything that I should know. And, th- and therefore, you'll yeah. be there. Because I know you're a decent human being, so you'll never close the door on someone, even if they kind of slam it in your face. I know that you'll reopen it for them in the future. That's that's the way I see it. But I've stopped. I've I've really stopped worrying about that because I've got my own family and my own community to think about. So I'll hand it back over to you, buddy, just to see what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Mike. It is about always remaining open. And it reminds me of this story. I don't remember the name of the guy, but it's the guy they made a film about him. Actually, the um the guy who predicted the two thousand eight uh, collapse. What was that film called? It was uh, oh, the Big Shot. The Big Shot. And that guy, he was ridiculed for what he was saying. Like, you know, nobody listened to him. It was just one guy kind of just, again, like screaming from the hills kind of thing. Everyone ignored him, thought he was crazy. And after the fact, everyone wants to know his opinion on everything. You know, after the 2008 financial collapse, it's like, tell us what's going to happen. You know, um, a wise man in the hills kind of thing. You know, know, I just did an episode about him recently because he predicted, he pretty much started to sell all of his stock and kind of said that this is going to come collapsing. So everyone was going crazy because he got it right the first time. But uh, you know what usually happens if someone gets the big call right once and then they don't do it again because, you know, it always happens while you're not looking, I guess. But yeah, just going back. One thing that I did want to ask you though, Johnny, just before we leave this topic, um, when it comes to everything that you've kind of figured out the last few years, did you have any foundations for that? Because when it came to 2020, to me, it wasn't a shock at all. Like I'd been preparing my whole life for that. My whole kind of future was based around the the belief that one day would go there. So I was in a very different camp to a lot of people. But did you know anything before that about things like September the 11th? Like, did you have any idea that it could be that sinister and evil? Or was this your very first experience and kind of awakening to holy, you know, I'm not going to swear, but you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that my first red pill was actually 9-11 you know I was quite young when that happened so at the time it happened I wasn't really old enough to think too critically about it I was only 11 years old but then as time went on probably when I was in like my kind of teens I really started looking into that and realizing that there was just so much that we weren't being told and that it was a very very there was just so many red flags and I still don't know to this day exactly which flag like flags are legitimate red flags and which ones aren't but just the totality of all the flags you line them up and it's like even if even if like 90% of these aren't actually red flags and are explainable, that still leaves 10%, you know, enough to be hugely, hugely skeptical about the, the official story. So I did, uh, that was probably like my, my initial red pill. The funny thing for me, Mike, is when I went to, when I went to uni, I felt like I, I kind of, I basically coughed up the red pill and swallowed another blue pill. <laughs> I, I think that, that you, yeah, like university has a way of, a way of doing that to you. I mean, um, I, I'm not sure whether your uni experience was the same, but certainly mine was an extremely far left, like it was extremely far left politics that were just kind of woven into all of the education. And, uh, you know, before going to university, for instance, like I, I was, I was quite like, um, I guess not like really pro Brexit, but I was like kind of mildly pro Brexit and things like this. And, you know, I'd, I'd formulated my opinions. I felt, uh, you know, just based on my own understanding of the world and my own research and things like that. And then when I went into university, I felt like there was this real, um, I don't know, it was just very forceful in a kind of like left-wing direction. And there was a, a real kind of high trust of, of, of government and kind of like, um, like socialism was, I just really felt like it was, 
it was kind of much more leaning in that direction. You know, if you were kind of conservative minded, if you were libertarian minded, you, you seem to almost just be kind of like ridiculed, not only by your peers in university, who I found like a lot of my peers in the university, as soon as I went there, I didn't realize how far left everyone was. But then even just the education itself, even the education I was getting. Now I was doing kind of a, like a liberal arts degree. So like maybe it was just a liberal arts thing. And if I'd have gone and done, you know, uh, what degree was it, Johnny? I'd done a, a hard sign. It, it was cinema and photography. I actually kind of like studied to, to be a filmmaker. So, um, so yeah, that, like it could have just been that, right? Like it could have just been the industry, but I definitely felt like through that process, by the time I came out of university, I was like, I was like quite radically left-wing compared to now, for sure. I was quite radically left-wing. So, um, I kind of had to relearn that honestly. And like, you know, even when it came to Brexit, I was like, you know, super, super pro EU. I was like, I was, I was screaming for, for remain, all that kind of stuff. And then after the fact, you know, I wasn't one of these Ramonas. I actually did kind of accept the result, which was probably, you know, that showed that I was kind of moving much more in, into, you know, normality. I accepted the, the democratic vote and everything like that. And then over time, you know, it was, it was also kind of a similar time of kind of discovering Bitcoin and Bitcoin really sent me down a rabbit hole of, of uh, understanding Austrian economics. And I think that when you understand more about the financial system, it's extremely hard then not to see the world in a completely different way. Like it, it kind of just completely pulls the wool from in front of your eyes and you realize that, okay, well, the entire foundation, the entire kind of communication layer for the entire world's economy, which is, you know, money is corrupted, like fundamentally and deliberately. Um, and I think once you see that, it becomes a lot easier to kind of swallow other red pills because it's like, okay, well, you know, I've already seen how bad it can be. So, so there was definitely other things that kind of fed into my, into my life. And then, so I think that I was kind of primed for it. Like it didn't take too much to, to kind of get me to see 2020 for what it was. Um, yeah, there, there've been a few touch points in my life. Yeah. It was, it was a bit stranger for me, I guess, because I, you know, I, it's, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm saying this from like a really like, Oh, I knew everything point of view because that's totally not it. But I had a really good friend when I was younger. I've mentioned it before on my uh, podcast, and we kind of figured out a lot of things when we was young. Uh, there was copious amounts of of uh, cannabis being smoked at the time, and uh, we used to just spend all night kind of going through stuff. But we both had very intuitive personalities, and you know, I always felt in my heart that one day these people at the top of this structure, and I'd done a lot of research. I mean, I, I've always been a pretty good researcher, and I was researching the Federal Reserve when I was like 15, 16. And we used to talk about these banksters and the stuff they'd done in the past. And then we figured out like kind of 9-11 and I went down that rabbit hole. So by the time I made it to university, I'd kind of been through the dark night of the soul. And I was like, yeah, this place is pretty dark. And I did truly believe that at some point there would be an attempt to depopulate because I thought, well, at some point they're going to, these very rich people who who clearly have zero empathy. You know what I mean? Like, and if you know that they rule it, that they are willing to slit a man's throat to take a dollar out of his pocket, as a famous quote once said, or to send millions to death just to end money off the munition, uh, munitions and arms, or to uh, give, give hundreds or thousands of doses of a drug that they know kills people, but they know that if they release that information, they're going to lose profit. They're willing to do that. Once you understand that those people exist and they've always existed... Well, then it kind of allows you, if you've got a creative mind, to say, well, at some point, they're probably going to not need all these people if automation and an AI gets to a certain point. And if you're a psychopath, at that point, you might say, well, it's more dangerous to keep these these people alive. Let's just get rid of them, the useless eaters, as they call us. Uh, so I, I actually kind of felt that from when I was young. And I actually was really depressed for most of my teenage years for that reason and kind of 
zoned out of life. I thought, you know, I'm going to smoke it away or drink it away. But then ultimately, I kind of came through that and thought, no, this is, you know, I have to make something of my life. So that's what pushed me to go back to university and to actually start helping people, which is a very kind of vague aim in life. Like, how can I, you know, I want to help people, but it, it truly was. It was like, well, that's the best thing I can do with this time I've got, because at least I know I'm not contributing to that. And I'm kind of adding something better to the mix than what they're doing. So that's what sent me down my path. But like you, university was very uh, far left, but I'm a natural lefty, Johnny. Like that is my natural predisposition is to want to help the subjugated, the poor, the needy. Uh, yeah. I, I always believed that wealth did need rest- redistributing to some degree. And even today, although I, I, I'm clearly not a leftist of the modern variety, the radical leftism, I still believe that this gross obsession with money and capital is probably not the way either. I think it's a cycle. I think that's important at some points in history. And I recently had a guest on, and I'd love to get your take on this. This was Fabio Vigi. So he wasn't my last guest, but the one before that. And he's clearly left-wing. He actually studies, he's actually a professor of critical theory. So I was like, wow, like, you know, critical theory has all of this baggage to it today because it's like critical race theory or critical yeah, uh, feminism. Yeah. I don't really know what that means to be honest critical theory it sounds very broad but I know I understand critical race theory is basically just wokeism in a degree it's pretty much that I mean but that's what it's come to represent uh today that's what I would say but he's he's clearly out of the leftist variety but a very sage leftism it's like you know no capitalism was always going to dis- devolve into this kind of tyrannical phase because at some point, the pursuit of capital becomes impossible because the wealth has been hoarded. And at that point, people just descend into, let's try and make more money out of money. And they hyper-financialize it. And of course, corruption always exists. So he kind of believes that this is just a natural part of the cycle. And therefore, we have to go back to something more, um, let's say, I don't know, actually, I never actually got there with him. I never actually got him to say like, oh, we need to be socialist X, Y, and Z. So I am going to get him back on to discuss his ideas further because I was still trying to figure them out, I guess, as we spoke. But I personally believe at this point there would need to be some kind of redistribution. I don't I don't agree with these ardent capitalists who have like 20 or 200 or 300 million in the bank and say, no, we should keep it as it is. It's like, no, actually, it's too warped. There's too many people that have intergenerational poverty that there does probably need to be something else that is more communal. It's going to require us all to probably seed some of our materialistic greed, which we all have some of. I don't know what your take on that is, Johnny, and I'm probably getting us into a conversation that maybe we don't want to go down, but I'm just going to hand it back to you. Do you feel like the same thing? And I guess it is a left-wing view that we do need to have some kind of redistribution of power, but not in the way they're doing it. It has to be something that's from the grassroots, in my opinion. Yeah, I do have a lot of thoughts on this, actually. And just to give a shameless plug, I'm not sure when this episode is coming out, but I, my most recent episode, I haven't released it yet. But my next one's going to be with a guy called Guy Swan. And we actually go into this. I go into, like, basically edge cases of kind of libertarianism. And it's like, you know, can can libertarian lead to the results that we want? Are people are just going to be kind of constantly enslaved? And I kind of give him these very, like, hard edge cases of saying, like, what happens in this situation? You know, don't we need some kind of socialism or, and uh, I think that he answered those pretty well. So like, um, yeah, just to just to plug that one for people more interested about this topic. But my thoughts about it generally are like, I think that ultimately if the, the most important thing is that you don't violate a first principle in order to bring around the world that you want. So I think we both generally agree that, you know, just saying, okay, 
there's really rich people who are billionaires and there's really poor people. So we're going to go and take their mansions off them and redistribute them. That's wrong because we have to have a foundation of, of property rights in general in society. And we have to say, okay, that is going to be respected. We're not going to violate it. I actually think that most of the problem and most of the reason that the wealth um, is skewed as it is at the moment. So we do have an extremely wealthy class of, you know, 0.01% and then, you know, the, the 99.99%. Like the reason that it looks that way is because fundamentally the money is corrupted. So it's trended in that direction because the incentive structures are such that that's, that's the way that it goes. You know, it's just the ever, ever inflating asset prices, uh, because you have, you know, infinite amounts of money being printed and therefore the people who already have capital, they just get exponentially wealthier while everyone else gets exponentially poorer if you don't have the capital. And then that incentivizes people to just, you know, for instance, never sell houses. I mean, you look at places like London and it's like, well, a lot of those properties are not being lived in. You've got entire, you know, apartment blocks that have got, you know, they're at like eight or 9% occupancy and everyone else is just sitting on the property. They, they don't even have an incentive to rent it because they're earning so much from the property value going up every year. Why would they bother getting, you know, the the pocket change of having a tenant in there who's going to pay, you know, two grand a month when the property itself is going to go up by, you know, 80, 90 grand a year kind of thing, right? So I think that to bring it back to the, the, the original point that you were asking, I think that, yes, I would like to see a more kind of um, equal world. But I think that it, we shouldn't be violating any first principles to get there, namely the principle of property rights. So I think that if you fix, you know, I do believe, I know it's like a cliche, but I think that fix the money, fix the world. But it's but it's not only that. I also think that there needs to be a spiritual change whereby people who have money um, actually have the, the, kind, the kind of social pressure to do good with that money. I think that at the moment, the problem is we've got, we live in this world where everyone says, oh, well, we'll let the government deal with everything. You know, like poverty, the government deals with it. You know, this, that, the other thing, the government deals with it. I actually think that we need to kind of like come back to a society where you say, okay, well, the government's not going to deal with it, with everything. People have rights to their own wealth, but there is a social pressure for people who are particularly wealthy to do good with their money. So if you happen to, to have, you know, a lot of extra money rather than, okay, well, the government's not just going to do anything for everyone. Maybe you should go and go and help. Maybe you should give, give more money towards this thing. I know in some religions they have this, you know, like in, in, in Islam, they have the expectation that people are going to give a certain amount of their, of their salary to, to charity. Um, I'm not saying we do it in necessarily the same way, but I do think that there needs to be a spiritual change in society. And this is something that I always advocate because I'm, I'm similar to you, Mike. I, I wouldn't say that I'm like an, a natural kind of, I don't know whether there's necessarily such a thing as a natural left or a natural, you know, uh, libertarian or something like that. But I definitely think about these issues a lot. And I definitely think that, you know, I'm not one of these people who's just like, ah, you know, like who cares about everyone else like just make as much money as possible and you know that's the game of life and you know it's all about making money and that you know the only thing that's important is you make money and that demonstrates that you have value in society and that's all i just think there needs to be a spiritual change so yes i would like to th see these things come around i would like to see um you know i don't want to see poverty and things like that in the world but i want it to come through having a combination of getting rid of these kind of gatekeepers and getting rid of the way that the money system works at the moment which is completely unjustified and having kind of at the same time as actually going back to respecting property rights and respecting people owning things also having that kind of spiritual change to society that hopefully is going to lead to people taking more decisive action in their own communities and just to go back to the conversation i mentioned before that i had with guy swan recently the way that he says is that is that you know you should have kind of at the family level you should have socialism right and then or, or i think he said at the family level you have communism at the community level you have socialism at the uh i don't know what whatever the next level it is you have centrism or something and then you have like at the at the federal level you have you have anarchism some, something like that and he was basically saying we should be taking a different approach so you know in our communities 
we should be helping others we should be engage with it know what's going on we should you know everyone should be helping each other should, should know the people around them and should be kind of in tune with uh, the needs of the society and if you have more you should you should uh, give more but it should be a voluntary thing and then on the national level on the federal level that it should be essentially you know more of an anarchist system it should be people keep what they want you know you enforce property rights and you take no further action so i do think there needs to be a spiritual change but the problem is i think that so like what we have right now which is some kind of you know, you might say fascism. I know that's a that's a loaded term, but you know, we essentially do have something akin to fascism. It's not the the kind of you know putting people in concentration camps type fascism. But if you look at the definition of fascism, it's something similar to that in a lot of countries. Now, that actually doesn't allow for that spiritual change. It doesn't allow for people to to get connected with uh, spirit because we're expecting the government to to do everything, and we are taking no kind of personal responsibility. So I think that as you move towards a kind of vol voluntary system, I would like to see. We also need to have the kind of spiritual change in society to move towards that as well. It needs to it needs to be a dual process. People need to recognize if we're going to go to a voluntary system, we need to start taking personal responsibility and responsibility within our communities and stuff. So it's I, maybe that's a flaky answer and it might sound a bit like, oh, well, you know, it, it's, it's very kind of like unclear. But I think that it, it is unclear. My position is somewhat unclear, but I think that the most important thing is that you don't violate property rights by trying to redistribute wealth in, in any way. You, inf you actually enforce property rights and uphold them to the highest degree. And then you um, you have the other shifts happen as a result of both the change of incentive structures and the change in spirituality in society, try to encourage a spiritual change. I'm smiling, Johnny, because just before we started this episode, we spoke about the great taking and the usurping of the property rights, but it comes to equities. Yeah. And I'm like, well, where do we sit on that one? Because if we enforce property rights, they have created legal structures to ensure that they have the property rights over everything, over all the assets. And therefore, if we followed your your principle there, it puts us in a very difficult spot because that means that they've legally taken everything, which was the point as well. Because this is the point, actually, that everything has to be done through law because they are terrified that we all just wake up one day and say, wait a minute, you don't own everything. You just tell us you do because of the law. So it create that I mean on with no law we go to anarchy. However, with law they can legally own everything, take everything, subvert the law to ensure that it enshrines their rights while simultaneously removing ours or subjugating us. So it is a very very difficult subject. But like you, I certainly don't believe this is something that we should be looking for in terms of like a French Revolution situation, which I think was probably. Uh, controlled by the same people who uh, control the banking system anyways. I don't think that was a natural occurrence. I've looked into that history a lot. In fact, I'm going to do a podcast episode purely on that. But I think these are difficult subjects. But I think ultimately, my if anyone who listens to this show will know that my view is entirely the same as yours, Johnny, is that this is a spiritual awakening that needs to happen. And the next stage of human development is to the, whether those things wouldn't even matter. It's like we are all working towards the same ends, which is community, health, and actually moving closer to meaning. So that would be spirituality. That would be God. But I mean a real vision of God, not something that they fed as some soupy cosmic Christ to control us, because that's what's coming next. They understand that the void that has been left with atheism, which they purposely took us to so that they could fill us with materialism, greed, um, anger, self-hatred, narcissism this culture we've got now they took us there but only as a interim on route to taking us to a one world system which will need a one world spiritual guru or leader uh, and i actually think that's the antichrist i think this is where we're going i think i see it in biblical terms i don't know if you know that 
But even if you don't, you surely must have become aware that recently there has been a big push for this kind of idea of a cosmic Christ or an avatar or consciousness. We're all one consciousness, which, trust me, I believe there are certain elements of all of this which are true, but I also think it's weaponized. It's taking us towards what their end goal is, which will be some kind of one world system with a one world, one world religion, actually, is what I'd say. Uh, and it will probably be something like Covidism, but with religion involved. So it'll be like, you know, everyone obsessed with some kind of new prophet or messiah. Now, I think we're maybe 20, 30 years away from that. But that's my big worry is that this spiritual awakening that might happen is going to also be hijacked by the same people. Uh, but just one more thing before we leave part one, Johnny, I wanted to just ask you about Mexico specifically. I know you lived there and I just wanted to get your kind of opinion on how things are over there. We've got a lot of preconceptions in the West about what Mexico is, but I want to know what it's actually like to live there and how people responded over the past few years. Do they have a big pushback over there? Is it possible to control a country the size of Mexico? So just give us your thoughts on that, because I know a lot of people in the West are considering upping sticks. And Mexico is one of the countries that comes up quite quite often. Yeah, I, I mean, the I wouldn't say, honestly, that there was a huge resistance on the ground here from what I saw. Um, the, the difference with Mexico, and I think with a lot of the third world, is just that it's it's very hard to tyrannize a country where if you shut down their businesses, people start starving, you know, like it's very difficult. So I think that it's just the nature of the incentives here means that it was just it, it, like impossible for, the, for them to, to really bring in that kind of stuff. I know that some states did try to do it. And actually the state that I live in, Jalisco, they actually did try to, um, to, to bring about some of this stuff. I, even now they're pushing forward quite a lot with like smart city stuff. I know that Havoy has talked a lot about this stuff. So, um, you know, he gives a very good indication about what's going on. He, he lives in Guadalajara, which is like, you know, the, the main city here. And uh, yeah, and I know that they're, they're, they're pushing with that quite a, quite a lot in, in Guadalajara. So definitely there is on an individual state level, they've been trying to bring in this stuff, but it's just not really landed. I think they don't really have the technology for it. I mean, for instance, in this country, Mike, there, there's only something like, I was reading the stats on this the other day, there's only something like 35% of the country is actually banked. Most of the country is unbanked. And that's actually... A, a lot for a country like mexico that's um it's actually more unbanked than you get in quite a lot of you know quote-unquote third world countries and it's actually falling as well so over the past 10 years it's fallen by about five percent so more people are becoming unbanked than are becoming banked so it's quite rare to see something like that in the world so i think that um it's it's very hard to do this kind of stuff it's very hard to you know have qr codes for everywhere and you know just before you move on johnny what's stuff. the reason for that in your opinion yeah. that there's so many unbanked and it's falling as well like what are people doing with the money as an alternative and why? I, I actually don't know the answer to that, but I suspect it's because people don't like the taxation here. Taxation is not particularly high. And when it's a cash economy, I mean, you can spend cash for anything here, including your rent. You, you know, you pay your rent in cash. You can pay whatever you want in cash. Everyone will accept it wherever you go. So but I think aside from like buying a property or something like that, which would be very difficult to do in cash, but I'm, you know, probably people do it. But it's very difficult to do it. So I think that people don't want to have bank accounts here because it kind of puts you on the radar for taxation. Most people here, they're just not paying taxes realistically because you know most people they don't have a bank. It's very you know it's impossible to even to even tell. So I think a lot of people they see being in the banking system as a way to get on the radar of paying taxes, and they don't you know even if you're earning quite a low salary here, you have to pay taxes. The taxation here is uh, it's not that great. I mean it's 
I'm not entirely sure how it compares to, to the West. But so I think a lot of people, they just say, well, look, I, I can I can live in a cash economy. You know, I, I don't need a bank account. I'm not I've not got huge amounts of money. You know, maybe you live in a family house that you are, that you you own the house. But, you know, all you do is you, you just uh, go out and you work your job and you pay the bills and you're happy to do that. That's that's the situation for a lot of people here. I think they just think, well, a bank is just um, it's just going to take more money away from my pocket. That Now, that's my suspicion. I don't actually know if that's definitely the case, but. I imagine that could have a part to play because the the tax bracket is quite low. So you you know if you're earning relatively low amount of money, you still got to pay uh, taxation. So it could be that. Um, but in terms of just like the wider picture, I mean, the government uh, seems to be. They've said a lot of good things, in my opinion. Um, they've you know the the president came out quite publicly and basically said that big pharma was too powerful and that he wasn't going to allow big pharma to kind of dictate policy in the country. And um, they've also, I think he's said a lot of things about banning GMO foods and things like this. I don't know whether it's actually happened yet, but it seems like he, he's quite anti a lot of this technocratic stuff, it seems. And I've kind of been waiting for the moment where, you know, something happens, some kind of coup or, or whatever. Now, at the moment, that hasn't happened. And I think that it's safe, at least for the for the time being. But the bigger thing, because obviously, you know, the government does what it does. But the bigger thing is. Um, people who are moving here and the ideologies they have. And I think that Mexico has recognized that a lot of people, especially from Canada and America, have come over here permanently uh, because they were being, you know, tyrannized in their own country. And they've said, you know, I'm, I'm done with it. You know, I'm going to come to a country that's more free and I'm going to live my life here. And most people that I've met who have come here as well, like they actually they actually care about the country. You know, they want to they want to get involved. They want to learn the language. They're doing stuff on a community level. It's not just kind of coming here and just reaping the benefits. I think that the government recognizes that has a big uh, positive economic impact. If someone comes over from America and, you know, brings their entire bank balance over. I mean, uh, I was talking to a guy the other day. Um, he came over from Canada and he was able to bring, he was able to transfer his entire Canadian bank balance to a, to a Mexican bank. They didn't even ask him any questions about it. They actually have special provisions. <laughs> well, for that's, because they, that's because they're used to dealing with large sums of money from the cartels, I imagine. Poss quite possibly, but apparently they, they have um, these... Yeah, they have these um, kind of provisions that makes it very easy. So I think that the government has actually seen the uh, economic opportunity here, which is quite rare. It seems like where when most of the countries, it, this is kind of totally different in the West. You know, we look at the Western government, I look at the UK and stuff, and it's almost like every decision that they make is how can we do the most economic damage possible with this decision? You know, like, like whatever the issue is, it's like just the, the polar opposite of economic sense. Uh, you know, in Canada, it, it's the same. These countries, are, they have so much kind of um, an inflated sense of their self of their own importance, or they, they think that they're just invincible um, to economic consequence. So they make um, economic decisions that are not in their own interest. And in Mexico, it seems different. And I think a lot of kind of more of the the kind of quote unquote third world, they, they recognize um, economic opportunity. And I think Mexico has seen it because if you think about where where Mexico exists geographically, you know, it's just south of, of the United States. It's in the same time zone or within a two hour time zone of basically, I think every single Canadian and American uh, time zone. So people can, who've gone remote through COVID have just said, oh, well, you know, I can work remotely. I can stay in the same time zone and I can go and live, you know, somewhere for a, one fifth of the cost. I can actually, you know, buy a house. I can actually start being more self-sovereign uh, and I can carry on as I was and I can earn money outside the country, spend the money in the country. The government realizes that's economic economically a positive the individual recognizes it's economically positive so it's it's a great situation for everyone involved i'm just kind of waiting for you know the uh the, the lizard the lizard people in the wef or whatever to kind of like uh rec see that this is going on and find a way to kind of stir the pot but for now i just think it's a it's just an alignment of some positive um 
factors, some some kind of positive incentives. And uh, I think that I'm really, really positive about Mexico. I'm very, very bullish on it. I think that it's going to do super well into the future if this continues. And, you know, from what I've experienced, Mike, the people who have come here, they have no intention of just walking out the door. It, it, they're not ready to go back. They are setting up lives here and they're, they're very serious about they're, they're done with the home country, especially the Canadians. I mean, they ain't going back there, you know? So like, sorry, Canada, but you know, they, the, the brain drain has already happened and will continue to, to occur. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great place. Also just a side note, um, it is very easy to move here as a foreigner as well. It, it is very easy to, to actually come here. It's not difficult to get uh, a uh, citizenship. Well, I guess like a residency and stuff like that is, is easier than a lot of countries. So that also helps. Um, so yeah, just, just as a side note there, but um, yeah, very, very positive about it. Yeah, I had somebody in my private community for my YouTube channel, not my podcast for podcast listeners. You'll all know I have the Parallel Systems broadcast too. And the Patreon for that is more around actual um, finance and getting prepared. So it's a little bit different focus, but we talk about the same topics. But there's a woman who's in that private Telegram group for my Parallel Systems broadcast. And she said that she basically had to go to an embassy in the UK and then she went out there and within six weeks, she got a 10-year residency. So I was like, what? I was like, that's crazy. Because when I come to Poland, the process was about a year long. So I was really amazed at that. Uh, and one thing that I would just pick up on what you said, and this is just my pessimist hat on, because I kind of feel like I understand how this is going to unfold. Obviously, no one knows the full cost of it. But it feels to me, Johnny, that if you are trying to create a one-world system, you have to do something about all these countries that have 35% of people in the banking system or you know, have no infrastructure for 5G, 6G, 7G, and all of these crazy technologies that they're going to be applying to create a giant technocratic state. So I think I am bullish on those countries, but not because I think politically we're going to see anything but puppets. I believe everyone, every country is ultimately going to be controlled, but it's more so that they have to allow a lot of growth in the global South, in Latin America, in Mexico, in Africa, so they can implement the same structures that are already existing in the West. It's very easy to trap us now in the West. Like in the UK, it's the most surveilled yeah, country yeah. on planet Earth. There's so much technology already a part of people's lives. Everyone's got a phone. Everyone's in a city. There's nowhere to run to. So you're kind of like trapped on prison island there. So it's like easy. You're all easy pickings. But in Mexico, like you said, there's all of, there's a lot of people still in poverty. So I think there's going to be rapid growth. And that'll be a much better place for someone like you or I to live over the next 30 years. But if they did succeed, then ultimately it would at some point, you know, it would morph itself into the same structures that we've got in the West. But uh, I think it fails before then. So actually I'm bullish too, but for different reasons. Uh, I try and not trust anything to do with politics because... Uh, ultimately, I think the whole game's rigged. And if you look at what happened in Brazil, for example, it's a good example of, you know, they had uh, Bolsonaro. Everyone was like, fantastic. I actually know a few people who live out there. I've got some good community members. And they was like, Bolsonaro was great for the country. Wealth was being created. We was going in the right direction. Next thing you know, he's gone and Lula's in. And it's like 180 degrees. Now the country's terrible. It's socialist again. And they're up upping all the taxes. So I, I think that to and froing is actually a key part of how we get to tyranny you know they give you a little bit they take a little bit but you always end up further down that path uh so i just wanted to throw that back out to you johnny like do you do do you have the same opinion that ultimately we're all we're all on the same ship it's just you know you're gonna have a better seat on the titanic if you move somewhere like mexico you might have another 20 years so it's like higher ground to fight from in a way yes yeah, so, somewhat true i think i mean like you said, it just depends. Is is this stuff actually going to last out? I know that 2030 seems to be their big date for saying, okay, you know, this is the date that we win kind of thing. 
I, I don't think it's going to go like I don't think it's going to go the way that they want it to. So you know, in my opinion, I still think that there's always if you can go somewhere that's going to um, be better for you. I still think that that that's a good thing to do. Even though yeah, they will try to bring around the tyranny. Some places are a lot harder than others, right? It's kind of like if you're in if you're in Europe during World War II and you're living you know in somewhere like Poland is the better decision to you know stay in Poland and go oh well the whole of Europe's going to end up in a war or is it better to say hey you know like maybe I'll go to another country here to to try to last out a bit longer i think that if you can see the writing on the wall it's always a good idea to to kind of like take uh, to be be conscious of that and to kind of take uh, decisions but also mike you know and i'm sure you'll understand this because you went to Poland and started a farm um if you're in the uk like imagine trying to do what you did in the UK, you know, you would have had to take out like a, a massive loan for, you know, a million quid to buy a small plot of plot of land somewhere. And then that plot of land is essentially owned by the bank for the next 50 years of your life while you do what you can. And then, you know, within that 50 years, they decide that it's no longer your land uh, or whatever it is. I just think that if you can go somewhere where you can actually get that self-sovereignty now earlier and you can actually kind of lock it in rather than being um, subject to kind of paying mortgages or, or paying some kind of taxation on that, you know, essentially kind of like paying some kind of rent on, on the thing that you live on, then you're in a much, much better position. It's very, very hard to tyrannize someone who, you know, they, they own the, they own the land, they own their property, et cetera. You know, obviously this extends to other things like um, owning your wealth and your money and precious metals and, you know, Bitcoin or whatever it is. There's also that aspect of it, but even if you can just go somewhere that allows you to have more of that self-sovereignty initially up front it's much better and you know for me in the uk it's like the only option for me buying buying a house really in the uk would have been well i would have had to take some kind of mortgage or i would have had to you know essentially rent you know live in a live in a garage somewhere right like you know whereas out here it's actually you know i can i can buy a house outright i can i can own that i'm not you know having to to take a mortgage i'm not going to have to be um, subject to, to essentially paying the bank or having the bank own my my property so that also has a big in impact as well. Now that's not available to everyone. You know, if you're a person who is um, who is kind of already poor and you're already in a third world, unfortunately, that might not be available to you. But I think that if you have the optionality, if you can be, go from a from a kind of rich Western country where you know the the only options available to you are to have something where you don't really own it, and you can go somewhere where you can actually own some own something, I think that that's worth doing as well because you know when they come around and say, Hey, sorry, you've not been vaccinated. So, uh, like we're going to kick you out of your house. You no longer can stay here or whatever. If you own your house, it's very difficult for them to do that. And that's just obviously a small example. There's a lot of other reasons why just having, um, true self-sovereignty over your property, et cetera, is a good thing. And that's a lot easier to do, uh, in a country like Mexico than it is in the, in the UK. And obviously likewise for you being in Poland. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think it's a super smart move and, uh, you know, I'm one of the first people to say, like, you have to get out of certain places. And I'm not going to regale the places because I don't want listeners to be turned off if they're in those places. But we do have to be ultra cautious that, like you said, if you go back to the 1930s, there were certain places in the world you just didn't want to be. And arguably, all of Europe could end up that place. We just don't know. But what you can do is just take action as and when uh, the writing's on the wall. And I think in certain countries, uh, particularly the country that we were born in um it's getting really difficult and the certain agendas that you can't stop like you know can you stop them housing migrants in hotels no like it's been proven over seven, 70 years that agenda is kind of being unfolded 
Uh, the level of danger in the country has really gone up. Crime's just going up. Uh, and I, I would say that as well. The UK and probably Canada and Australia too uh, are extremely spiteful towards their own citizens. Like there's no love there. Whereas when you come yeah. to Poland and you actually, like that was a huge shock for me because I assumed that all governments were like that because I'd never lived yeah. anywhere else. But when I came to Poland and I found, wow, they actually do genuinely want to have a healthy population. Don't get me wrong. There's still a government and there's still all of the same mechanisms. Yeah. However, they do an awful lot to try and make the country more successful. They're very interested in a strong nation. They don't want people to be poor. Like to give you an example, they recently did an initiative where if you're young and you buy a house, they will pay the interest on the mortgage for a decade. Like you're never going to get that in the UK. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so there's lots of things. Also here, you know, it is a form of socialism, I guess, in that if you have a child over here, they will pay you 1,000 zwater for every second child you have because they're trying to increase the um, the amount of children being born. That's not depopulation. It's the opposite. So these are things that actually encourage me too, Johnny, and I don't think mm. we should ever throw the baby out of the bathwater in that there are better political parties than others. Uh, but like you, I think we always have to go back to that default position that ultimately we have to trust in each other as communities, build those strong parallel systems, because politics can always get corrupted and it will do. And these parasites at the top will try and take out every country. But I really like the idea of being in a country the size of Mexico, where it's more affordable. There's more people like yourself moving there. So you, you're already getting a parallel system. And also, it's it's much vaster in terms of the landmass, and that's going to make it so hard to control. Even if you add all the mm -hmm. infrastructure, you'd have to corral people. And yeah, I I think it fails before that. So I, I'm totally all in on that one, Johnny. But one thing, just before we end it, is how safe is it over there? Because all I can think of when I think of Mexico is these newspaper articles of like 50 heads rolling down the middle of a highway because the cartel dumped them out there. And, you know, we've all seen those stories. Is that actually something that people should worry about in Mexico? Like, do you ever feel unsafe whilst you're there? Or is this more located in certain regions? And if you avoid them, you're pretty good. I mean, honestly, in my experience here, I think that Mexico is far more safe than uh, people let on. And, you know, this is kind of a general belief that I have as well. Like, I, I think that a lot of the time in the West, it's, it's, it's another part of the PSYOP is make everyone believe that any country that isn't, you know, a Western uh, nation is you know somehow really really dangerous it's like wherever you go in the world you know you're going to get mugged you're going to you know you're going to get kidnapped whatever it is i think it's all part of the psyop to, to keep people where they are to keep people you know basically it's like a, a kind of stockholm syndrome you know keep people um being kind of subservient to you by making them believe that everyone else is dangerous so that's a general point but yeah in my, in my personal experience it's not um there there are for sure less safe places and there's more safe places but I've never had in my whole time here, I've never had any crime committed upon me. I've uh, I've been like perfectly, you know, I've never had someone kind of like mug me or anything like that. It's uh, actually, that's not true. That's not true. That has, that has happened once. I've literally just remembered that, but that was, uh, that was after a, that was after a bar fight actually, which um, is another <laughs> it's which starting is a, to sound like one of those uh, war stories that we tell after a few <laughs> just remembered now but it wasn't like you know someone coming up on the street kind of thing it was an opportunity it was an opportunistic thing after a uh 
after a kind of um, a bar incident that happened. It wasn't like a gun to your head kind of like disturbing. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. There was no guns involved. There was no knives involved. I've had. I've seen someone shooting a gun. I've seen someone um, doing a, shooting a gun a gun out of a car in London. I've had someone um, accost me with a with a knife in London. I've had someone steal my mobile phone out of my hand while I was walking along the street in London. A lot of these, you know, these things have happened to me in London, and uh, I actually think, in my experience here. For sure, we're living in a more in a more safe place here. We're living on the west coast in a place called Puerto Vallarta, which is, uh, you know, considered one of the safer places in Mexico. Uh, but in general, I, I've never really had too much of a problem here. I think that as long as you don't do anything like particularly stupid, like going, you know, particularly on the on the border with the United States, where you've got a lot of the cartel activity, you want to be more careful there for sure. Um, but I think that there are certainly a lot of safe places to be here, and it's not. I, th- I think that. It, the the general fact is that most places are safe rather than most places are unsafe you just have to be aware of the places which are which are more unsafe it's not the other way around i think most people's opinion is that the whole country is unsafe and you have to look for the safe places i think it's it's the other way around really so you know uh, it's it's easy enough to avoid them and i think that over time um, i know that there is some uh, i i was talking to Hervori about this actually recently and he thinks that mexico um, he's not convinced that it's getting more safe i think uh, whereas i generally get the impression it is so Probably it's maybe remaining around the around the same, um, but yeah, I think that it's not it's not a huge worry. I don't think you know if people wanted to move here and they were like, hey, I want to take my family somewhere. This you can look at the top safest cities in Mexico and they're comparable to an average city probably in the West. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of countries like this because they're looking for the outside investment. They want people to bring their pensions across there and retirement to invest, and they want them people those people to have a good experience. They don't want people to be getting mugged and killed in those places because that's going to stop the golden goose. No one's going to come across. So I do think that. And also one thing that you really pointed out, which I thought was a really good point, uh, was that in the UK, people often live very insular lives and they don't realize how their lives have been shaped to give them an artificial level of safety. You know, people go in their cars. They don't walk out at night. Uh, we have places where we intuitively know are safe and are not safe. So we kind of live in a bubble in the UK, not realizing just how unsafe it is. But the moment you actually put yourself in a situation where you're not fully aware of what's safe and what's not, i.e. you go down to London, you hang out in Birmingham in, at 9pm on a night in a bar, then you realize, oh shit, it's not actually as safe as I think here. And for me as somebody that worked in lots of different communities during my career, like I felt unsafe all the time during the day as well like though i can tell you there were certain times i wouldn't even get out my car like if i if i got mm-hmm. my car i'd have been like stamped i'd have been kicked in by about 50 people like it was that dangerous in certain regions so we do have an artificial level of safety it's a middle class view of the world in the uk that everything's everything's good everything's fine but those people often live very insular lives they drive to their families they drive to certain shops but they're never actually truly living in that region like walking the streets uh, yeah, so I, I, th- I think going forward, people will probably get a rude awakening in the, in the UK, sadly. But Johnny, I'm going to leave it there for part one, but it, we have made it to well over an hour. And for listeners that enjoyed part one, really, this was just the opening opening gambit, Johnny, because in uh, part two, I want to take you down into the trenches, brother. <laughs> I want to have a conversation all about morality in an age of atheism. And I want to talk to you about where your principles come from, because I know you are forming a spiritual belief. You've spoke about that in recent episodes on your show that I've been listening to. So I want to get into that. Like, what does it mean today to have principles? And why is that so important more than ever? And why are people seeking that out? There's a desperate need for it, as you mentioned in part one. So I think that's a perfect conversation for part two. 
So we'll take a little break and then we'll get into it if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it, Mike. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly, Peace in our time. Peace in all time. 